I'm Dan. I'm Jordan. And this is the Money Basics Podcast. A podcast where we discuss money, budgeting, investing, and everything in between. And if you like this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share. Every little bit counts, and we don't grow without you. Welcome to another episode Money Basics. We're on track to be producing an episode every week or two. Our New Year's resolution. <laughs> Perfectly on track. Four and a half weeks later. Uh, episode 25. But I know, anyway, whatever. Who cares? That sounds about right. We stopped counting episodes in the podcast titles, actually, because uh, it honestly doesn't really matter. And I, You did. But I keep writing it on our scripts. Yeah, well, I, I think like those numbers. I think like when you're looking for podcasts through a Spotify search or whatever, um, like the average person, I don't think really cares about the episode number. They're more interested in the topic. So by getting rid of the episode number, it leaves more room to describe what we're actually talking about, which hopefully gets people to click on the thing to listen. Fair enough. Yeah. So that's that's the uh, the thought behind that. So today uh, we thought we would sort of. Uh, tackle something on a bit of a different angle than we have in the past. We want to talk uh, more specifically about our investments and investments in general um, and maybe dive into some specific companies. And I think the angle we want to take with this, as you know, our podcast is meant for like basically the beginner investor, the beginner personal finance journey person. That's sort of the main target. And not to say that those with a little more experience can't listen. We do have some more experienced people who kind of listen in. But um, on that level where we're sort of speaking to the the more junior person in this world, um, what we want to try to do is like keep it simple that it's understandable and drive relevance and try to like pique your interest. And so I think that's sort of the angle we're going to take here um, and start talking about some of the companies that we like, that we maybe own uh, and, and why we like them. And maybe just give you a little overview about them and show you that there's a lot to these companies that. Um, can get your buy-in and make investing kind of fun and, and why I personally I actually enjoy researching these companies because they're in industries and and making products that I like and use and and see value in and it's kind of cool plus we're just trying to avoid repeating the same thing over and over again so for the sake of that I'll just summarize money basics <laughs> sweet this guy's good at this <laughs> no it's, so of course always keeping in mind that you know I, uh, as it stands right now, um, the economy is still, um, you know, inflation is still a thing. Interest rates are still high. Um, you know, people are still spending way too much money it's true. in in general. Uh, and I would say, to you know, instead of dedicating a whole episode, because I was thinking originally, I was like, I should make a script about like, you know, like theme nowadays is like new year, new me, new you type thing. Yeah. And we can just like, but like, I'm like, it's kind of repeat. So here's a quick summary of what an episode could have been and that's not what we're going to do but basically stop spending your damn money uh save your money um you know save an emergency fund you don't need to go on that vacation you can do something cheaper um pay off your debt stop using your credit card as much and uh be smart and uh yeah that's that yeah so as we get into this investing talk and we're talking about all these crazy companies that we really like and all the wild things that they do um just a little caveat to that is uh you know we do a lot of research on these companies and there's reasons why we pick them now, different investing styles and strategies can lead you down different roads and a company that's good for me might not be good for you for various reasons because you don't know my investing goals and I don't know yours. 
Um, so this is more just to drive interest in the general thing. We're not necessarily advocating you go out and buy these stocks. And we might not even necessarily own every stock that we talk about today. Um, and probably what would be your best bet if you're like, hey, this is super interesting and I'm going to go buy all these stocks today. Uh, before you do that, maybe like rewind this thing, listen to some of our earlier podcasts because you have to build a good solid foundation before you jump in headfirst into investing. And by that, I mean like getting your finances in order, making sure you're in a good place because there is some risk with any, just like anything in life, there's some risk to investing and you need to make sure you've taken all those steps to basically shore up your foundation to make sure you don't screw your future over by making some very silly moves. Um, and, and the analogy you could use is like when you're building a house, like if you wanted to build a million dollar house, you wouldn't just go out and start putting some timber together and building this thing. You would have to build a nice sturdy foundation, maybe even excavate, put a little basement in there, you know, pour, pour some concrete in there and something sturdy to build on. Because if you just start putting wood up in a swamp, your house is going to collapse and it'll all be a waste. Uh, and, and it's kind of similar with investing, right? If you don't set yourself up with your, your personal finance and your money, things aren't in order um, and you invest in the wrong things, a couple of bad moves can wipe you out and we don't want you to do that. So just keep that in mind as you listen. Uh, and then hopefully the kind of the goal here, like we said, is we just want to get your brain thinking that, hey, investing could be kind of fun and, and there's probably more to it than you're thinking about. Um, so I think that hopefully is a nice little caveat. Yeah, well, uh, on the foundation part, for sure, you know, rate, again, money basics theme is, you know, you want to take care of that debt, get your personal finances in order, have some money set aside that you don't touch, and then any investing money is play money. And the reason that we preach that is because you never know what's going to happen. Even good companies have downturns because whole economies can go down for any reason. Um, and you don't want to panic sell and mm -hmm. get yourself in a tricky situation because of that. Um and that's kind of what we're, I'm going to talk about with my experience anyway, and you can uh, weigh in as well. Um, but I do think of something, um, I was listening to a podcast way back where these guys, I don't even remember which podcast it was, but these guys interviewed Burton Malkiel. He's the one that wrote, um, I think it was a random walk down Wall Street. And he's a big uh, index ETF uh, guy. Um, and what he had proposed might be a little extreme, but what he had proposed was even having a foundation in investing and his strategy and what he, um, teaches is, or preaches or however you want to put it is having an 80% index portfolio and a 20% individual companies. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, uh, that's not that far off from what I'm sort of targeting with my own personal portfolio. I'm not there yet. I'm not even that close to it. But over the long term, that's roughly the balance that I hope to get to. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, an index ETF, you can find some that literally buy the entire world <laughs> stock market. It's true. Yeah. Um, and so the benefit of that is, is that you're buying everything. And instead of betting on one horse, you're betting on all of them. And that's probably the way to go for most people. And the advantage of an ETF that we can buy is um, low, low fees compared to something like a mutual fund, which yeah. is garbage um, and huge um, uh, managed, but not over managed port um, uh, portfolios have a lot of companies in them. Uh, and it's something that you could, you know, spend a lot less time researching rather than each individual company and just going on the whatever company that's running the ETFs website and check out what they're doing. And that would probably be enough um, for the average person. And then just sinking your money into a, a well-rounded couple of ETFs would, would be what most people could just do 
if they had extra money to play with and yeah. they just didn't want to do anything other than save some extra money. Um, yeah. And, and, so, and, and the reason why index investing, so buying a little bit, you know, buying an ETF that owns a little bit of everything. The reason that works is because the general stock market, let's talk about the S&P 500, which is the 500 biggest companies, the best companies in America. Um, that's usually like a really good benchmark for what a lot of investors invest in. And the S&P 500, um, I forget the exact stat, but basically it's like for every, uh, every like, I forget how they word it. Uh, there's a ratio for the amount of years. If you look at any certain timeline, it goes up like 75% of the time versus down 25% of the time. Don't quote me on those numbers, but my point is the ratio is there's, it goes up significantly more than it ever goes down on a long enough timeline. So I, I can't tell you what's going to happen the next six months or the next year. It might go down, but it for certainly might go down. But if you zoom out to the next 10 years, it, history has shown it's more likely to go up than it is to go down. And if you zoom out to a 20 or 30 year time frame, it's, I wouldn't say impossible, nothing's impossible, but historically in any 30 year timeline of the S&P 500, it has not lost money. Um, so that's, that's why the S&P 500 works is because there's more companies in the stock market that are winners than there are that are losers. And when you buy an ETF, especially one like the S&P 500, that ETF actually rewards the winners. Um, so there's ETFs that are managed more than others. The S&P 500 isn't like super managed. They just take the 500 best companies and then they they buy a bunch of them. And they just sort of let them run. Um, so you can actually see the top like six or seven or eight holdings of the S&P 500 are absolutely massive chunks of that ETF. While the next like 400 or 400, uh, let's say 80 stocks are like way smaller chunks, right? And the reason is because those big companies have grown in value. The stock went up and up and up and up and they just never sell or trim that position because why would you? That would basically be punishing a company for doing so well, right? Um, so anyways, that, that's why a lot of index investing works is because a in a huge group of stocks, they, they tend to go up more than they go down. More companies tend to succeed or at least they create more value than the ones that fail. Uh, and that isn't universally true. There are different ETFs. Some suck. Some track a very specific part of the market. And sometimes that very specific part is a terrible investment uh, or have more risk than others, right? So um, what I'm saying isn't universally true across the board, but... Yeah, so and we can use like uh, the ETF VFV as an example um, that we both own. So VFV uh, buys the S&P 500, all the 500 companies. There's a little bit of each where there's a, anyway, you can find out those details specifically. But as of right now in my portfolio, VFV is up 16% in my portfolio, which is beating the average for now uh, of around 9, 10% for the S&P 500 um, research data that shows us for the last whatever 100 years, right? Um, versus let's say a random company I'll pick out of my portfolio, let's say TELUS right now is down 10% overall my portfolio from where I bought it. That's just how it's working for me. Um, but it's a, I think it's a, a, a tangible example to show you that, hey, buying a lot of companies may be more beneficial than buying individual companies, especially in a scenario right now like what I'm in and telecoms are getting pretty hit hard right now because of inflation and interest rates and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so, so yeah. And the other thing that Burton Malkiel had mentioned as well was, um, long term, long investment uh, time horizon as well, which is others preach that as well. Other people that have been investing for a long time that are very rich, um, you know, and you touched on that a little bit with your monologue there. Um, you know, 
having a long investment time horizon is uh, increases your chance of success. Mm -hmm. Usually, usually. But I will comment though. I am also listening to a podcast, the TLDR podcast. I don't know if you've checked that out yet. The little simple one. Yeah. It's okay. Um, it's, it's short and quick. I've gotten used to it. It's a nice little 20 minute listen. Um, but they were talking, they're talking a lot about how, um, the S and P 500 right now is being heavily propped up by tech stocks, yeah, know, specifically Nvidia that has gone up crazily. Um, not only because of how they're performing, but a lot to do with AI and all that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. So, but, but that would be where I would caution, like, would I go out and buy NVIDIA right now? I don't know. Uh, probably not because they've, they've skyrocketed, but I don't know. What do I know? I, I don't know them enough. Or would I just buy the entire market where NVIDIA is a part of it and it's popping it up a little bit? Yeah. But I mean, unless you have some particular insights into that specific company, um, probably best to just, you know, spread your bets. But if you knew something about that company that a lot of people didn't know or didn't really understand fully and you had super good knowledge of it and it made a lot of sense and you're like, wow, nobody's seeing this, but I see that they're going to release this product. They're going to make this move that's going to make them amazing results in the future. Um, then maybe it's worth placing a bet on it. Um, but unless you're like this mad scientist who studies all these things and, uh, you know, unless you have particular insights, it's probably safer to spread your bets through something like an ETF. Um, but, you know, there's this sort of principle in investing that, you know, we're talking by, we like the index investing, you know, where you buy a little bit of everything and, and they say on average, the S&P 500, depending on what timeline you look at, it gets you anywhere from like eight to 13% per year on average. Um, so like, that's great and all, and it really reduces your risk versus buying like only Nvidia. Um, but it also sort of caps your gains as well, mm. because imagine you bought Nvidia like five years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's all you bought. You would be right now way ahead of the S and P five hundred. Oh yeah. So if I let's say I had ten thousand dollars to invest, so I have Jordan and I we each have ten grand. Okay. I put my ten grand in the S and P five hundred five years ago. Jordan puts his ten grand directly in Nvidia five years ago. We don't put an extra dollar. Today, my ten grand would be worth. I don't check my math on this, but let's just say uh, I got really lucky. It's been a good couple of years. My ten grand is now worth twenty grand. Jordan's 10 grand is worth like several hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So that's the difference. Diversifying your bets limits your gains, but it limits your downside too. What if Jordan was wrong on NVIDIA? Uh, what if Jordan bought PayPal instead of NVIDIA? He, his 10 grand would now be worth like three grand or something like that, while my 10 grand would be 20 grand. So it limits your upside, but it limits your downside. And it's actually much harder to recover money when you've lost it. Than it is. Uh, what are you smiling? <laughs> I'm just checking Nvidia right now, and dude, five in the last five years, have you looked at this? So in the last five years, Nvidia has made one thousand five, almost one thousand six hundred percent gain. Wah. So so yeah, I'd be rich. But but, <laughs> but it's a gamble. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Absolutely. Right. I'll, how, I'll look up PayPal. And how could you have known that, right? So. Um, yeah, it's generally best to sort of spread your bets and protect your money because it's very hard to recover a loss. Um, so we're looking at PayPal in the last five years, they've lost 31%. Um, so your 10 grand would have been worth, what's the math on that? Like six grand-ish? Yeah, something like that. Um, so that would have sucked, right? Um, yeah, so that just, you know, basically we're just saying spread your bets. So, um, but if we took the same example and you put 80% into an S&P, like into VFE as an example. Yeah. So say you took uh, eight grand of your 10 and put it into the... To, even, Let's say five grand into the S&P, into the VFV, and you're up 10%, let's say, and you took your other five grand, put it in NVIDIA, 
or PayPal, even PayPal. So at least we are up 10% on the, on the S&P 500. You're down 30% on the other $5,000. You've hedged your bets. You're kind of countering it a little bit. You're still down overall, but you've spread your, your money around. And that's what Burton Alkeel was teaching. He goes a little further saying 80% should be a solid foundation index ETF and 20% play money. So if we use that formula, 8,000 would go into the S&P 500. VFV is an example. That's not the only one, but that's the one that we like. Um, and if you took the other $2,000 and put it in NVIDIA, you'd be up 1,500% in the last five years. And that's a nice little chunk of change. Yeah. So it, in that example, if you put your $2,000 in NVIDIA uh, five years ago, today your two grand would be worth $32,000. But your downside risk, if you were completely wrong on this and <laughs> NVIDIA went bankrupt, you would have only lost $2,000 versus yeah. your entire 10 grand. So that's sort of the principle there. And there's two big points I want to hit there is one, Overall, your $10,000 is money you're investing that you don't need. Yeah. Could be. Should be. Because then you're like, okay, even if you lose all of it, yeah, that's not fun, but you're not... You're not losing your house and you're not affecting your family's lifestyle. Yeah. And then in the case of this, you've still got your original $8,000 in your foundational investment, still making, you know, 8 to 10%, and that's great. And then your $2,000, if if it went to zero and the company disappeared, you'd be like, all right, well, again, $2,000 sucks to lose, but not the end of the world. Let's just keep trucking. Yeah. So I, I actually really believe in that 80-20% or something to that effect. Um, because I, I really do believe, you know, a lot of people go 100% into ETFs. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, it's a very safe bet. And if that's your risk tolerance, then all the more power to you. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I also believe that if you never play the lottery, you're never going to win, right? Yeah. And And this lottery is kind of interesting because there are things you can do to increase your odds of winning that lottery. You can do a lot of research and get a good understanding of how a company operates and gain insights that Joe Blow doesn't necessarily know and get an edge. And, and it doesn't ever give you 100% certainty, um, but maybe it brings it from, you know, a, literally a lottery draw, one in a million shot to like a one in a thousand shot or a one in a hundred shot because you understand what this company is doing and you can see, hey, there's a decent probability that they actually have a very successful business and a long runway for growth in the future. And that helps your odds of the stock going up in value. I like these conversations with you because you make it so easy to segue into stuff. Mm. So as an example, my portfolio, I only started investing roughly three years ago. And for I was only up when I first bought my first companies. I was up for a short period of time overall in my portfolio. I think I was up maybe $2,000 overall, maybe a little bit more uh the first year and then things took a nosedive after that because of inflation interest rates and other things and so my portfolio for the two two of the three years has been down almost three thousand dollars and it had me really worried i was thinking okay i've got this you know twenty five thousand dollars in there uh it's down you know i you know whatever so i have all these thoughts in my head and we talked about that a little bit with the noise with the social media and the different stuff we're involved in i've really decreased that really happy that I did because I'm looking at it today. We were reviewing our, our stocks before we did this podcast today. And like, I'm up like a couple hundred bucks and three, two thirds of my portfolio is up mostly. And the other third is still down and I'm up overall. So I've got my stuff spread around nicely and I'm feeling pretty confident and good about my choices so far. So some of my companies are up 40, 50%, um, while others are down 30, 40%. Um, but those are mostly the weed stocks and that was our risk, my risk play. That's the lottery ticket. That's the lottery ticket. Yeah. I've got, you know, I've got a a third of my 25,000 in actually I got more. No, sorry. I have $32,000 total. So I have one third of 32,000 in my weed stocks, which is my, my, my lottery ticket. Yeah. Um, so I'll continue with that. It could 
you a good little story time uh, about the lottery ticket aspect. So um, the American weed stocks, to clarify, that is also what, what is my high risk play. This is like I say, you don't win the lottery if you never buy the ticket, right? So um, we've both purchased American weed stocks uh, as sort of our lottery ticket, high risk, high reward play. I got into this a long time ago uh, and bought into some of the bigger operators that were at the time they were small companies, but they had a very likely path to making money to being profitable money. despite a very tough regulatory environment in the states because it's federally illegal right but there was a lot of momentum and progress so i bought into these things and uh my small position grew and grew and grew uh and then as it builds momentum you get excited and you buy more which um at the time was that turned out to actually be a really good choice and at its peak uh now just for perspective, I'm not a rich man. I, I, I do okay, but I would say I'm like middle-ish class, probably uh, upper middle class. I don't, I don't really know what the classes are, but I make like a reasonable income. I'm not a lawyer or anything. Um, and my investment in these wheat stocks at its peak turned into $200,000 of total value. And, uh, and that was when they had hit all-time highs. And uh, I had made this checklist. Now, I was an inexperienced investor, and I had read some things that were good advice, but I didn't fully understand risk management. Um, and basically, the, the, the angle I was going from was there was a number of catalysts that I believe were going to happen that would help the industry. And it didn't make any sense to sell the stocks unless something changed negatively, as in the company started making bad decisions, falling apart, blowing their money kind of thing. Um, so I was only going to sell if they either screwed up or if these positive catalysts occurred, then I would start taking money off the table because their prospects in the future would be less exciting. Um, well, there was some political things that occurred where these catalysts didn't, um, didn't like the likelihood of them didn't like get any less. It just, the timeline got pushed a long way. Um, and then these stocks went down. Uh, over a long period of time, but I held because I had an investing plan. I had sort of my entry plan and my exit plan. And I thought, well, nothing's changed. The timelines move, but nothing's actually changed. So I'll just sit this one through and see what happens. So my, I, from peak to low, my investment went from $200,000 down to $65,000. And I didn't sell much at all. I sold a little bit at a small profit on the way down. Um, but you know, if I had a crystal ball, I would, <laughs> I would have taken the the 200 grand or I guess the 100 and almost 135 grand difference. Um, but how can you know? Right. So anyways, it went down to 65 and now it's back on its way up because there's some momentum building again, but uh, you know, having the plan and stuff, but this comes back to sort of having a plan and then understanding risk and how to manage risk. Right. So in hindsight, knowing what I know now, even though like I, there's no way I could have known what the future would hold, um, understanding risk management a little bit better, uh, I would have taken at least the original investment off the table when I was way up like that. So I would pocket the original money that I put into it. Um, and probably then, at, you know, a little bit of extra I could have taken off as well and then roll these gains into something else that's safer, like the, like the ETF. Because if you think about this, um, we're talking, you know, 80, 20%, 80% ETF and 20% high risk stuff would be great. But imagine if I'm targeting that, but my 20% runs like crazy. It goes up like 500%. Well, now my 80-20%, even though I haven't added any more money, that 80-20% split is all messed up now. Because my 20% grew so aggressively, that split turns into like 
40% ETF and 60% high-risk stocks because those high-risk stocks ran so much. So it's sometimes an appropriate strategy to like crim your gains to maintain that balance, to protect your downside. And like I said, when you protect against risk, you also limit your upside. So this is sort of a decision that every investor has to make. And this is sort of more advanced, but yeah. So, but for the average, like for those who don't know what Dan's talking about, trimming, meaning selling and taking in the some of the profits and probably redistributing those into those safer ETFs to, yeah. to balance out to, that 80-20. To make sure, exactly. To make sure that balance remains at 80-20 or, or whatever it is that you set. Uh, and that's what I did not do. So my money went way up and it came way down and I'm no further ahead. Right? But I would like, that's hard to do. Like you can't. Absolutely. Like it's, I don't know. I, I would argue that I don't think anyone can predict those types of things, even though they might say they well, can. This is what I'm saying. I couldn't predict it, but I could have managed risk and pocketed some money just knowing that things don't go straight up and things can happen. Mm -hmm. Not knowing what those things would be. Uh, but then again, by doing that, I would limit my upside. So if I was wrong and things continue to go up, like maybe I pocketed a bunch of profit, but you know, I pocket hundred grand and the stock keeps going up and I could have made a million, you know? Yeah. It's like when I was doing practice investing, I, I bought some Dollarama with my fake money. I have not in the last six years seen Dollarama ever go down. Yeah. They're, they've been, uh, they haven't gone pretty... up like really quickly, but they've slowly and steadily have, yeah. and they've, and since I've been watching them, they've added a dividend. They've increased that dividend a few times now. Yeah. They're a solid company. Yeah. I should buy some. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, so that's basically where I'm at with that, but you know what, in the moment when it was basically at all time highs, I remember looking at it thinking I should sell like this. I could literally take this money and pay off my mortgage and be mortgage free. I thought that. And then I thought, you know what, though, the thing is, I manage my mortgage just fine. My personal finances, my day to day life, like I live exactly how I want to live pretty much. Um, and I thought I if I pulled all my money out, paid off my mortgage, it wouldn't change my life tremendously. Um, but if I let it ride and, you know, it's a, a coin toss and it ends up I'm correct and I make a million dollars or maybe not that much, let's say $500,000, that would change my life. So I, I took the decision. I said, I can live with letting it ride and being wrong and, I act, and then I don't make all this money. I could live with that more that I took the chance and now I know versus playing it conservatively. And then, you know, I sell my stock and then watch it go up to the point where I would have been a millionaire but I, I pulled the plug too early, that I would have a hard time living with. And this is all a factor of I did not invest money that I needed for my day-to-day -day life to survive. So I could take that risk. I was in a position to take that risk. So that's sort of where my head was at. But anyways, now things are uh, starting to go back up. So we'll see. Like the thesis might still play out and ask me again in a year or two. Maybe, it, maybe that does turn into a million dollars worth of stock. I doubt it, but uh, you never know. So I, I, um, I keep, every time you talk about you know, how modest you are with like your income and stuff, and I don't want to go into too much details of whether you want to share or not. So I was just Googling here what, what average income is. So just to like put it into perspective for you, I won't, you know, throw out too much if you don't want me to, but let's just put it this way. Average income apparently in Canada, according to whatever article I'm looking at right here is $70,000 a year before taxes. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, so do they put the classes? What's upper class? So that is considered middle class. I didn't look. Uh, and is that household or individual income? That's uh, household. Probably household, yeah. Hmm. Financial classes, high, upper class, I guess. Well, 
either way, regardless of what I fit into, I'm not complaining. I'm very fortunate and very happy with my income. <laughs> yeah, so those in the upper middle class have incomes between 89000 and 149 Yeah, so, so that's, that's my bracket. Yeah. Yeah. Upper class is... 149 or higher. Yeah, okay. So I, I guess make, you're right. Yeah, I don't make that much. <laughs> Dude, I'm almost at middle upper class. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, anything else you want to touch on, like lessons learned, that type of thing? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I would like talk about this stuff with like individual people that it came up with for whatever reason. And I would mention to them that like I'm down, you know, X amount of dollars and be like, oh my God, like it would blow their mind. Like I wasn't worried about it. And, and to, again, to reiterate, I was, I'm not worried about it because one, the money I, I've invested is not money I need. Mm -hmm. The companies I'm invested in, I'm confident in every single one of them. Um, the one that, the one company that I wasn't confident in, I sold. So at a loss, cause I just didn't know where they're going. That was Algonquin power. And I'm glad I did cause they're still sitting at exactly where I sold them. <laughs> um, and I don't see things turning around, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, and, and now things are sort of going on an uptrend and we haven't even gotten out of this inflation, high interest rate environment yet. And I see a lot of upside to a lot of the companies I'm invested in. Yep. So yeah. That being said, unless you have more to add, um, the next topic that we want well, to talk about. No, I just, I do want to, I just want to add one little thing. Um, you know, talking about the, the stocks going down, like, you know, people freak out. Oh my God, you're down. You're, you've lost money. You don't lose money until you sell. Sometimes there's very good reasons to sell. But in my experience, having been invested through COVID when everything just dropped, like within days and weeks, dropped like 40, 50%. It was wild. And because I knew what I was doing to an extent, I had faith in the companies that I had purchased. I went very heavy into the stock market during that downfall. I I actually dug into my emergency fund because I was looking at this thinking there is no reason that some of these like rock solid companies should be dropping 40, 50% in a matter of days or weeks, I guess. Um, so I went heavy into the stock markets and I've made the majority of my best investments through that period. So all it takes is a cool head and a plan because a lot of people sold through that and lost a ton of money because they panicked. And I did the complete opposite. I capitalized on that. And I still hold some of those stocks today that I'm up like anywhere from like 20 to 50% on heavy dividend paying stocks, which was part of the strategy as well. So although the stock's up anywhere from 20 to 50%, I've held that since 2020 and they've been paying me like six, seven, eight percent per year just to hold the stock in cash payments on top of that 20 or 50 percent. Um, so yeah, just having a plan and a level head can carry you through this stuff. Um, but you have to make sure that you're in solid investments. And that index strategy we're talking about where you buy a little bit of everything, that would have been a really solid strategy through that period. Hell yeah. <laughs> So I don't want to go through, we wanted to, like, we never actually specifically shared, like, our portfolios. We've talked about some of the individual companies we own, um, some of them in, in more depth than others. But, um, and I don't want to go through our entire portfolio because that would just take way too long and be way too boring. Yeah. But I'm thinking, like, maybe the top, like, five or so. Um, yeah, well, I think we could highlight a couple of companies that we really like. Um, and maybe even talk about some that we don't necessarily own but really like. Uh, that'd be kind of fun, I think. Sure. All right. So I noticed when I'm reviewing my portfolio that I am pretty heavy into real estate. Um, and a conversation I've had a few times in the last couple of months is um, uh, rental properties. And I don't, 
unless things drastically change, I'm not sure if I will ever physically buy a, or I will never buy a physical rental property. I don't think, um, because it's just a lot of headaches and I've been a property manager and all that kind of stuff, but I do like, uh, REITs a lot and I have three. So REITs being real estate investment trust. Yeah. Um, so it's like a stock that the company, the stock deals exclusively in real estate. Right. The three that I own are smart centers. Um, so smart centers is a common one that a lot of you probably have seen. Um, they're, they house the majority of the Walmarts are a yeah. big anchor for them. Yeah. So any plaza you see with a Walmart is likely a smart center in Canada. Yeah. Um, and I, you see a lot of other stores on there, you know, a lot of uh, LCBOs, uh, maybe some type dollar stores, um, grocery stores, some, uh, they kind of got a range of stuff. And, and basically those stores pay rent to have their stores on that property. Smart Centers collects that rent, um, and then that rent in portion comes to me as an investor and all the other investors in the form of a dividend. Um, but the dividend kind of works a little bit differently with REITs, right? It's more of a, what do they call it? A distribution. A distribution, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of the same, but a little different. It's more in terms of like they collect the rent, and the rent kind of goes out as a distribution to the investors. Um, what I do like about smart centers is that they are diversifying. They are diversified and yeah. they're, they're doubling down on that diversification. Yeah. They're getting into uh, a lot of residential constructions. They own things like uh, condominiums, apartments yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, they purchased a lot of land in the Toronto area, Vaughan specifically. Yeah. So this is what I'm most excited for, for smart centers is that they've basically bought half of Vaughan. <laughs> <laughs> that's not entirely accurate, but they bought a giant chunk of real estate in like the downtown core. Um, and, uh, you know, by, by land area, it's not, it's not actually, actually on, but it's a super like prime location and a couple of big plots of land. And they've got this huge development pipeline project. Uh, and it's really neat. I don't know if you've read the slide deck and their presentations on on what they're planning to do. They call it, uh, is it VMC or something? Smart VMC, I think is the name of the project. But what's cool about it is, so think about any major city. Like we're in the Ottawa area, uh, but the same would be true for probably like Montreal, Toronto. Basically, these are old cities. And as the times change and technology improves, they have to build all this infrastructure, but they have to work within this old ass city. You can't just tear down dozens of city blocks to put in train lines and subway lines. You can do a little bit of that, but you're mostly working around the stuff that already exists and it, it's tough. And what it makes is streets that aren't necessarily optimized and transit that isn't necessarily optimized. But what Vaughn, what Smart VMC is doing with this property they've bought is they have an opportunity, at least, at least in those areas, to like basically build a modern city or a modern chunk of a city from the ground up where they incorporate transit with the condos, with the stores. Um, so, so you're not going to have like a giant Walmart with a huge parking lot. You're going to have like a condo and the bottom floor and maybe even un under it is going to be like stores. Uh, you're going to have like restaurants and groceries and all the stuff. And then under that underground, you're going to have a subway that goes right into Toronto. So think about this. You could theoretically in the worst snowstorm, rainstorm of, of the year, you could theoretically go down in your shorts get your groceries, bring them back up to your condo, go back to the subway, take it right to your office building downtown Toronto, and then get into the office and not, never need a winter coat. I mean, you probably would want to if you're taking the subway and stuff, but that's sort of just the, the kind of revolutionary idea. They're, they're optimizing living to this, this like modern standard of living, and they have this rare ability to sort of do it from the ground up and do it right. And I think that's super cool. Neat. Well, what I do like is that any store that operates on the, that land 
technically we're I'm gaining profit profit from their profit because they're paying rent and that rent is exactly. partial in in part comes to me. That's right. So um and I have a smart centers where I live and I drive by all the time and every time I look at it I'm like that dividend's coming to me monthly. Hell yeah. Yep. And what else is cool about smart centers is so they, they that's sort of the lion's share of their money is uh is these like retail plazas like you see any plaza where Walmart is all of those surrounding stores there's a good chance that's all smart center property and they're all paying rent to smart centers who's paying it to Jordan and myself. Um but what they're else what else they're doing is in Canada there's a huge housing shortage I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, so smart centers is getting behind that. And like Jordan said, they're building condos, they're building townhouses, residential places for people to live because there's high demand rents are going up. So it's actually a really good investment. So they're building these properties. And I would argue they've got the moral high ground because they're providing an essential service that people need. And there's not a lot of money there for, for builders right now with high interest. Like people aren't building a lot of houses, but smart centers is so they're providing places for people to live and they're making a profit while doing it. So it's kind of a win-win. Um, and then another part of their business model is they actually sell some of these units. So some of them they maintain like big condo towers, they rent them uh, and, and that's how they fund their business. But others they'll build like townhouses and they'll sell them and you know, it's no longer their property, but they make uh, they make money on the sale of it and then roll that into future projects. Uh, and that's part of how they fund their operation. Sweet. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff there. Yeah. Very cool. So on similar grounds, I also own and like Rio can. So Rio can is another one. They have a lot of commercial real estate. So um, you might recognize Rio can uh, owning properties that the Tanger outlets may be on. Yeah. Um, Rio can also has their own plazas. I think there's a few of them sort of similar to smart centers in terms of having well, tons of them. Yeah. Tons having of them. like on the, on the street, the main street near where I live. Um, I think there's three of them in the like, 15 kilometers I take to work. There's three plazas and they're usually anchored by like grocery stores is sort of like the main tenant. Um, so the one by my house, it's a Metro and a Home Depot are like the main anchors. And then they got all these little things like, uh, I don't know, uh, there's a couple of restaurants. There's like a Shoeless Joe's and like a shawarma shop, a bank, a bunch of like, you know, smaller businesses. Um, and then the next one, uh, I can't remember the next one I think has, uh, oh, it's good life is in another one. Anyways, they have these like big name tenants, which is good because when you have these big name tenants, they're probably not going anywhere. They're going to pay rent. They're going to be successful. But what's more is the reason they do this anchor model, like a Metro, for example, Metro brings a lot of people to the store. You have to go to the grocery store. I mean, I mean, there's delivery and stuff, but most people go to the grocery store physically to get their things. But when you're in that plaza getting your groceries, you're like, oh, you know what? I'm hungry. There's a shawarma shop right there. I'll go there. So the anchor store brings business to the surrounding stores too. So that's that's one of the benefits of why, say, you're the guy who owns the shawarma shop. That's why you would be attracted to something like a Smart Centers or, in this case, a Rio Can property. Because by being in that plaza, even though you might be paying a little bit more rent, you're exposed to all of that traffic that the other stores are bringing, which then is going to drive business to your store. So if, so what Rio can gets out of that is they get to charge you a little bit more rent because they're, they just by being there, they're going to increase your traffic, which is going to increase your business. Hmm. Hmm. Rio can works very similar to similarly to smart centers. It's a REIT. It has, they do monthly distributions to their uh, investors in the form of a dividend dividend or dividend distribution. Um, and what I like about both smart centers and Rio can probably a little more Rio can is their payout ratio for these. Rio can has a, 
comfortable payout ratio. Um, I think they're in the high 80%. Or lower than that. Lower than that. I, nice. would, I can't remember. I'd have to look, but it's something like high 60s or like low to mid 70s. Okay, well, then that's very good. Yeah, it's below 80. Because um, REITs normally run quite high yeah. um, in terms of their payout ratio, but Rio can, um, so, that's nice. So by payout ratio, what Jordan means is like the company makes all this money in rents and whatever. Uh, and then they have expenses, obviously, right? They have to pay for, you know, their interest on their mortgages. They have to pay for the staff that it takes to maintain the product. All these bills they have to pay. And then the payout ratios after all the expenses, it's the amount of their, um, of that income that they pay out to shareholders like Jordan and I. So if that number is really, really high, um, that means they have less money to roll back into the business or to handle any catastrophe that may occur. So if you've got someone who's paying a 100% payout ratio, that means if anything goes wrong, they got to take on debt to pay for that thing, which is not a good place to be in. And in smart centers, they run pretty high. Uh, like mid-90s, are they not? Mid to high 90s, last I checked. Uh, while Rio Can, we're talking like, I'm pretty sure they're below 80. Wow. Um, so they've got a nice net, like big cushion there. And that also means that the excess money, they can reinvest into growing their business, building more plazas, whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. And then my uh, my third REIT, which you are not a big fan of, is Chartwell. I have conviction in Chartwell. I think that uh, you know they're going to keep increasing their business because of the aging population. Chartwell is uh, mostly in. Well, they have a few different branches, but they're mostly in uh, retirement residences. They do have some nursing home uh, exposure, um, uh, healthcare related type stuff, um, but mostly in this like retirement living community, sort of um, middle higher class type places. Um, but they work, they're just like a REIT, same sort of thing, just a little bit different, um, model. Uh, they pay a, di a, a distribution form of a dividend as well. Um, and, um, they're, they took a big hit during COVID and as well during this high interest rate inflationary uh, period, but mm -hmm. so they're on the up uptrend right now and I'm pretty happy with them so far, but I also like them cause I got two different chart wells where I live and I drive by them all the time. And I'm always like, I own you. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other companies you like? That yeah, so so those are like my top. Um, I actually just like very quickly increased my position in a, a company I always wanted to own was is TD, uh, TD, TD Bank. Yeah, TD Bank. Um, I dropped a lot of money into them um, whenever they dipped for for to me no reason, um, but it was all when the U.S. banking situation was happening and there was banks closing and stuff. TD has a lot of U.S. exposure, um, so I don't know. There was fear, I guess, in the market that they would be affected by all the stuff that was going down uh, about, I don't know, what, six six months to a year ago? Something like that. Um, and they dipped quite a bit, so I, I dropped a big portion of my money into that that I had available. So they're in my top five uh, holdings right now, and I'm very happy about that. I don't think you can go wrong with the Canadian bank. I think Canadian banks are very safe. I think TD is one of the better performing Canadian banks, uh, for sure. Um, and... Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have much more to say about that. Uh, yeah, TD Bank, I like them as well. They're a pretty solid bank. And I agree with the Canadian banks. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to, like, if no one's going to call you an idiot for buying a Canadian bank. They've been around for, like, almost 200 years, paying a dividend nonstop ever since. And uh, they mostly post pretty decent numbers of growth. Uh, yeah. And they're central and critical to the economy. So I can't see anything catastrophic occurring to them. There are certainly some Canadian banks that are better than others. And I think TD is at sort of the higher end of that list. And I do want to make it clear, though, like as a consumer, I would never open with TD. <laughs> I absolutely hate them as a consumer. I agree. 
I have a few companies that I own. I noticed that there's certain things that I remember growing up always hating, like bank fees, insurance yep. is another one that I always hate, still hate to pay. Um, you know, there's, there's these random things that I'm just like, I absolutely hate, or even like telecoms. Like I hate the big ones, Rogers and Bell, I hate, um, and as a consumer, I just find they're awful. So I'm in the same boat and I'll trash talk any of the major banks, any of my friends that are with them. I shake my head and I tell them, I can't believe like, what are you thinking? There's better options. Um, but they have such a stranglehold. These big banks, many of these companies you mentioned, or these industries you mentioned, they have such a stranglehold on the consumer. Uh, my mentality on this is like, although I personally hate them and personally don't use a lot of them, um, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, right? I was going to say that. So I'll join that stranglehold. Hey, if you're going to have a stranglehold on the consumer, then I may as well make some money off of it. Yeah. So speaking on that subject, some of my smaller holdings, so I own Great Westlife. Um, yeah, well, they're I, crushing it. Yeah, Great, Great Westlife is a big insurance company in Canada. Um, they're my benefits provider. Yeah, and I don't I don't use them. I don't have them as a benefits provider, but I know mom had to deal with them for some benefit stuff, and they were awful. Um, but like insurance companies in general, I find are awful. <laughs> but like, can't beat them, join them. Like that's one of my they, my highest ones. Like yeah. I'm almost up fifty percent in Great West. They Lake. make they make a lot of money. They make money hand over fist. They're great run businesses, even though it's at the consumer level. Uh, they're kind of annoying to deal with occasionally. I don't have any huge gripes against Great West Life. They're uh, they're not perfect, but they seem mostly okay for what I use them for. Um, but yeah, great stock. Mm. Yeah. Another one of my big holdings is uh, CIBC. A lot of reasons why I own CIBC, same with Canadian banks. Yep. Um, TELUS and Bell. I have big positions in TELUS and Bell. I actually hate Bell. Uh, <laughs> I love TELUS. Um, I am a TELUS user, not TELUS directly, but I am one of their sister companies. I, uh, I'm with Public Mobile and I love them. I have no complaints. I do notice that they're slowly trending into like the becoming, I don't know. They used to sell really cheap plans and they're slowly increasing the price, albeit giving more with the increased price, which I like, yeah, but I'm hoping that the trend doesn't continue and they turn into, <laughs> they turn into what TD Rogers and Bell does with their cell phone services. Cause you cannot find a plan with those guys for less than 80, 90 bucks for the average person. TD? You said TD. Sorry, Bell and Rogers. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, um, but yeah, so those are like my, my big ones that I hold. Um, ones that I wish I had more of that I really, really, really like is the Brookfields. So I have uh, oh, BN, yeah. uh, Brookfield, what's Brookfield National? Is that what it is? BN is just Brookfield. That's like the parent company. That's like the the overarching top of the flow chart. Yeah. Well, okay. Sorry. Just to wrap up. So Bell and Telus, like, are pretty clear. We like everyone knows those companies. You know, they're yeah. they're they're big telecom companies that provide TV internet services. Um, they do like and it's um, funny they they branched off. So they yeah, you're right. They do uh, like the typical phone internet that kind of stuff. Um, but they sort of branched off because what happened is these telecom companies, and you can lump Rogers into that too. Um, they they kind of like expanded as much as they really could with the telecom and it's still growing, but kind of slow because Canada is only so big. Right. So they had to find other ways to make money and they took different, they made different decisions. So Rogers and Bell went the media Avenue. They went with like TV and I think they even went with like print. Um, and that has turned out to be a not so good yeah, <laughs> investment yeah. decision, but tell us went a different direction and they went with the, um, what do you call it? The telehealth. Yeah. They went with the telehealth big. direction, and that didn't they? Know they just them? bought like a big. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. They bought somebody. Yeah, but anyways, the telehealth has turned out to be a pretty decent bet. 
Um, and it's kind of funny because Rogers and Bell still have these media divisions that are bleeding cash and they've got some hard decisions to make about maybe they're reducing staff. I wouldn't be surprised if one day they just cut it completely. Yeah, media is terrible. But meanwhile, you got TELUS that they have this growing business versus something that's just eating crap and dying. So that's why I prefer TELUS over the other two. Um, but all telecoms are big debt businesses. It costs a lot of money to build the towers, to run the lines, to provide these types of services. Um, so they have huge debt. And that's not so good when inflation's going up because when your mortgage goes up, so does TELUS's <laughs> debt interest, right? So does Bell's and so does Rogers. And they have to service that debt. Um, so it, it's kind of a tough environment for them. But I think as interest rates come down, we're going to start seeing their profits increase. And uh, they've been kind of smart too. I think they just sort of finished, they call it a, a CapEx cycle. So it's like the money they use to expand the business and to run those lines and build those towers. They're sort of, I think most of them are on the tail end of that CapEx cycle. So they're reducing the spending, which is good when interest rates are high. You don't want to be taking on all this debt. Um, so that's good. Profits should go up from that. And then I think as interest rates come down, profits should go even higher. So I think we're kind of on the back end of that rough period. So hopefully we'll see those stocks starting to come up in the near future. Time will tell. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with Mel, my wife, the other day. She was all excited that the markets are going up and stuff. And I was like, no, I'm like, I wish that they stayed down until I retire. And I would just throw all my money in them and then retire the next year whenever they went straight up. <laughs> that would never happen. But anyway, um, so the other companies, there's three uh, that I, or four that I recently purchased that I wish I put more in because they're on the uptrend quite a bit. And I might start buying some more, even though they're up, is uh, the two Brookfields. So we can, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, um, we can we can go into more depth about the Brookfields and the other one I'm going to talk about. So I bought some Canadian Tire shares. I like Canadian Tire. You don't. Um, I like how diversified how diversified Canadian Tire is. They've got their stores. They've got everything in their stores. Can you uh, can you tell the audience some of the businesses Canadian Tire runs? That's exactly what I'm going to do. Okay. Absolutely. So they've got their stores. They have all the products in their stores, um, and and a lot of products they actually make themselves. They have. Well, they make themselves. They they own um, Canadian Tire owns Mark's Work Warehouse. They own Sport Check. They own um, uh, Pro Hockey Life. They own Party City. Yeah. They own. Uh, there's another one. There's another one. I can't remember what it is now. Anyway, th those four for sure. Um, and you can tell because and, and they own a credit their own credit card, the Triangle Rewards yep. program. They have uh, gas stations. They have gas stations. Apparently, they own all the on routes. The Ontario yep. on routes, yeah, um, and you can tell because like all of these stores take triangle reward points. All of these places have uh, like the Canadian Tire gas station on the on routes as an example, um, and uh, they also apparently do all their own warehousing and tr and logistics. So their trucking is all owned by Canadian Tire, hmm. uh, and most of their warehouses are well, most there's a bulk of their warehouses that are actually attached to the stores themselves. Huh, that's interesting. It is interesting. So um, now. Uh, I don't know how the other Canadian tires are run, but I know the one that's in Cornwall. Uh, I hate. I go every time I go in there. I hate it. The staff are terrible, um, and I can't ever find what I'm looking for. Uh, but they are pretty. Uh, in my opinion, they are. They they've been paying a dividend for a long time. They've been increasing that dividend. Their their books look look good. They've been making money hand over fist. They're a big Canadian staple. And um, yeah. Anyway, I got some money in there. Wish I had a little bit more, but uh, it's all good. The other one I really like that I've bought recently is the Brookfield. So Brookfield Asset Management and then just Brookfield BN um, and CN, CNR, the train, CN rail. Um, that Those are fun because like I always drive by Canadian Tire. Brookfield, not so much. Maybe uh, we can elaborate a little more on that that I don't physically see. 
but CN I see all the time. Like I got rails, uh, tracks all over the place and I see CN almost every morning and I'm always like, I just see the dollar signs every time the train rolls by. Yeah. And CN's nice because like they've been around for a long, long, long time. Uh, they've also been paying and increasing their dividend for many years. And they just increased it recently. 7% increase. Yeah. Which is really nice. Um, they also have, you know, tracks all across Canada, even in some of the States. Um, they own most of the land uh, to which those tracks are on, which is massive. I don't think a lot of people give them credit for that. So they have, and what's more is they own it. And a lot of it they've owned since the 1800s, where I'm sure it was purchased for like a couple bucks or just outright given to them by the Canadian government to run the lines on them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're, um, they're a pretty sweet, uh, company. They, they, you know, trains are used to transport tons of goods and services. So you could even argue that, you know, I'm involved in farming because of CN and other yep. various, you know, goods that are being transported, uh, for sure. So, um, I've always wanted to own some CN and I dipped in a little bit, uh, recently and that's been nice. Yeah. I also am a big fan of pretty much all those companies except for Canadian Tire. I don't like Canadian Tire. <laughs> um, the trains though, I'm a big fan of trains, CN and CP. I like them both for different reasons. Um, CN just reported earnings actually. And, and what's interesting is Canada is literally in a recession. We have been for over a year now, I would say. And the reason you don't see this all over the media and, and, and it's not like well known, I guess, is because the it's basically like we're playing a game and, and the, the the opposing team is moving the goalpost on us. Um, so a recession is basically uh, I forget the exact uh, definition, but it's 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 tied to GDP growth and it's a bunch of consecutive quarters of not growing GDP growth. Now GDP can be measured in a bunch of different ways. Um, and the reason we're not technically in a recession, according to the politicians and the media, is because GDP has not been shrinking. Uh, but what they don't, what they leave out of that equation is we've had record record numbers of immigration. And immigration props up GDP because you have all these new people showing up in the country and spending money and contributing to the economy. But with if you subtracted immigration, then we would certainly be in a recession. And the reason that's important is because record immigration can't go on forever, right? This is a Band-Aid fix because eventually you run out of housing, which we're seeing, right? You drive up prices of everything because there's a shortage of things, supply and demand. Um, so we have been in a recession. So why am I talking about this stuff? Well, where I'm going with this is that trains, the Canadian trains are like the backbone of the economy. It's how we move things across this massive country. And if the if the country isn't doing so hot in the like economically speaking, we don't move goods as much, right? If you're in a recession, companies are producing less products because people are buying less products, which means the train ships less products, which means it hurts the train's bottom line. So it's very much tied to the economy. Now the trains, it's not a big deal for them. They've been through like I don't know, 11 or more recessions because they've been around since the 1800s, right? They know how to operate through a recession. And what's more is CN just released earnings. And despite the, the recession and despite the fact that their earnings weren't good, they still made a bunch of money. I'm talking in the billions for the quarter. Uh, no, sorry, for the year. I can't remember. I don't have this in front of me. But they still made a whole bunch of money. They just didn't grow more than they did last year. Uh, and that's directly as a result of the recession. So why do I like the trains, both of them, CN and CP? It's because they're the only two rail lines in Canada. So it's that's a, a duopoly, they call that. 
It's like when you play Monopoly and you buy half the railroads, you're bound to make a bunch of money off that because you don't really have a lot of competition. Your consumer doesn't have a lot of choice. They're either going to pay you money or pay the other guy money. So as a shareholder, if I just buy both trains, I'm going to make money no matter who you go with, right? Um, and I think that as we get out of this recession, probably I'm hoping in next year, I don't know, we'll see, um, you're going to see the profits of these trains go up quite a bit and they'll be right back on track. And historically, these companies... Pun intended. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. And historically, we've seen these companies do very well uh, for shareholders. They've returned a bunch of money um, over the years, over the many, many, many years. Uh, and I don't think that's going to change. And I think I've been buying them pretty aggressively over the last year or so while they've been beat down a little bit in stock price. I mean, beat down is relative. The trains don't usually get destroyed on the stock market. Uh, but they've been down a little bit and I've been buying. And I think that as we come out of this recession, we'll see those stock prices catch up and hopefully I'll make a few bucks on that. But you know what? If I make a few bucks in a year, that's great. But what I'm more looking at is the next 20 or 30 years. And ultimately, I don't think either of these train companies are going anywhere in the next 20, 30 or 50 years. Yeah. And, and uh, just to generally speak about most of these companies that we've talked about, most of them have been paying and increasing their dividend for many years, which is a huge advantage, in my opinion, to the investor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll talk really quickly about the difference, what I like about CN versus CP, because there's slight differences. I do you want to mention, though, CP did just make a huge acquisition in the Absolutely. last couple of years. They bought Kansas City Rail. So now, now they're called what? CP Kansas City or Kansas City CP? CP KC. Yeah. CK and Pacific Kansas City. So it was a merger. Well, I guess CP bought them, but they're Kansas City, whatever they were, Kansas City Rail, I guess. Yeah. They were a massive company in, in their own. So CP bought them and the price tag was like in the billions. Yeah. So massive. The advantage to CP or to both companies, I guess, is now they have access to those rails. And exactly. Kansas City Rail has north-south tracks. That's right. Going so, all so the way to the U.S. As an, as an investor, if you're looking at buying into the train stocks in Canada... Think of it this way. CN is very, very heavy east-west, and they have some tracks that go down into the states, and they have a pretty good network throughout, but they're very, very heavy east-west. CP, the advantage is, yes, they have tracks east-west, uh, but they go very heavy north-south, and they actually have lines right into Mexico, which I don't believe CN has. Um, so that's kind of a unique advantage. And Mexico is actually a booming economy. Mm. Uh, and they do a lot of stuff like automotive and there's ports along the way there. And so there's a lot of freight that goes north-south. So to me, CP is like the growth stock of trains for Canada. And CN is like the consistent dividend payer. And and you see that CP pays a very small dividend, but they're growing it aggressively, but it's tiny. And CN does not pay a massive dividend, but it's it's more significant than CP. And they're growing it decently aggressively too. Um, so I think there's good reasons to own both. I think right now, if you were to look at their financials at surface level, CN looks like a stronger financial company. But I think you're going to see CP starting to fly as they integrate that Kansas City acquisition, which they've already started to do. Good, good overview. <laughs> yeah. Did we want to talk about uh, Brookfield a little bit? So I absolutely love Brookfield. And this is a name that a lot of Canadians don't know. Um, now, Brookfield's a tremendous company. I, we'd have to look this up, but I would definitely say they're within the top 10 biggest in Canada. It wouldn't surprise me if they're in the top five or maybe even the top three. They're by market cap. Um, they're absolutely massive. And what Brookfield does is they are a 
So Brookfield's market cap is almost 90 billion Canadian. 90 billion dollars. So if you wanted to go buy Brookfield, like if you're some rich guy and you want to buy the entire operation, you'd need 90 billion dollars. <laughs> so what they are is uh, they kind of, they're like an octopus. They got their tentacles and all sorts of different businesses. Um, but they basically manage equity and they buy businesses and turn them around and make them better. In some cases, they just run the business and make profit. And in other cases, they'll turn the business around and sell it down the road for much more than what they paid for it. And Brookfield's a very complicated company to invest in uh, as a beginner anyways, because um, they have all these different arms and they have different stocks and different stock symbols for the different arms of the business. So you don't have to memorize all this. Like this won't be super relevant to so, you. So sorry, I'm just researching this a little bit. Uh, the top 2,000 companies in the world, Brookfield ranks 83. Yeah, they're massive. 2,000. And, and, and they have a global presence. And they're up from 375 last year. Yeah, they're growing insanely. And this is part of the reason I love them. So uh, as far as the stock symbols, um, we'll start like it's kind of like a hierarchy, like a pyramid. So at the top of the pyramid, you've got the symbol BN, which is they just call it Brookfield Corporation. That's like the parent company that owns all. And everything Brookfield does pays money up to that overarching corporation. So if you didn't know what to buy, probably just buy BN because then you would have exposure to every single thing they do sort of directly and indirectly. Uh, and coincidentally, I believe Jordan and I both own a bunch of the different Brookfield arms and including BN. And I believe for both of us, that's probably the best performing since we've owned them. I think BAM is up a little bit more. Okay, so then the next step down from BN is, a, is called BAM, and that stands for Brookfield Asset Management. It, uh, it operates as its own company, as its own stock. No, you're right. But BAM, uh, they're the asset manager. So they basically like operate a bunch of these businesses. They make fees from the other operating segments. Uh, and then they pay out a lot of a huge chunk of these fees, much like a REIT kind of. Uh, they pay out these fees to investors in the form of a dividend. So that's why you would maybe choose to buy BAM versus BN. Because BN will pay you like not even a 1% dividend. BAM will pay you like right now, like a 4% dividend or something like that. And it's growing aggressively. Um, and then underneath BAM, there's the operating segments and there's a bunch of them. Uh, I won't go over all of them, but the ones that we own, um, Brookfield infrastructure, that's kind of the one I'm most excited about right now. I don't know that one. You know, okay. I well, just own BN and BAM. So I own a bunch of Brookfield infrastructure. Basically they, this sub branch of Brookfield, they invest in infrastructure projects across the world. So they're building highways and ports and they own shipping companies and shipping containers and pipelines and telecoms and data centers, all this crap. They're critical. Uh, I'm going to sound like Bruce Flatt, their CEO, but the, the backbone of the economy is what he keeps saying. Uh, so the things that you need for your life to run that you often don't really think about. And they own all this crap. And we talked about this a lot in our last episode with uh, Ryan um, about how Brookfield like is like, so as a data, the data centers, as an example, right? All this AI stuff's floating around. Everyone's getting into it, the, mm -hmm. that, you know, whatever. Um, and Brookfield is, uh, is really uh, producing these, uh, uh, the, the backbone to that. So like, that's right. data centers, meaning like they got huge server uh, and mass real estate basically of yeah. servers and stuff to to house all of these these yeah. companies needs so they're they're they got their hand in almost everything yeah um yeah and like some of the recent examples of acquisitions like they bought so you're saying brookfield you don't really see it that much right yeah i was gonna but, say what, what but, would we see that would be maybe brookfield? well would... 
within all the different arms, probably the things you'd see most often would be the real estate stuff. They own some like super key properties. They have some stuff in Toronto. I don't know exactly what, but uh, uh, what I see is part of Brookfield infrastructure. So where I work, we've got these like sea containers like you'd see on a ship. We have them in the in the lot for storage, uh, like store equipment and stuff. And some of the sea cans we have are uh, provided by a company called Siemens, S-I-E-M-E-N-S, I believe. Hey everyone, this is Dan. The following day, editing this thing, and I realized I made a big mistake. From here on out, every time I say Siemens, replace that with Triton. They bought Triton, not Siemens. There was some other deal between Triton and Siemens, and I think that's what got me all mixed up. But Triton is the name of company I mean. Uh, and Siemens in itself is a huge company. Like, Siemens, so stuff. Siemens operates like fifty percent. They own fifty percent or so of the shipping containers on planet Earth. But don't they also do like audio equipment and like hospital shit and all this? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure they do like hearing aids and stuff too. I'm not sure. sure. I thought we're just a shipping company. But anyways, Brookfield bought Siemens, and they are under. They are owned by Brookfield Infrastructure. So I see that shipping container, and I think I own you. Um, so yeah, so that's an example, but like some of the recent acquisitions, like they just bought a, a massive stake in a telecom company in India. So they own like cell phone towers in India. It's crazy. They have all sorts of stuff. Another branch of Brookfield is, uh, the EP is the name of the stock. It's Brookfield energy partners. I don't know what it stands for. <laughs> Brookfield renewables. That's what it is. Um, so, um, Brookfield renewables deals in renewable energy. So basically they own sources of renewable energy that they build they buy and they kind of run these businesses um so they own like huge solar panel farms uh they own wind turbines um, but what's interesting and different about what brookfield does versus a lot of other renewable companies is brookfield owns a ridiculous amount of dams and hydroelectric power and that's significant because anybody can, if you had some money, anybody can go out and build a solar farm and, and compete with Brookfield or any other solar company. But you can't just go out and build dams. Like this is becoming harder and harder to do globally because of the environmental impact and such. And you need permits and it's super difficult and they're worried about drought and control of water. Well, Brookfield's owned these dams for like a couple of decades now. So it's like this critical thing that's very hard to replace and they own it, a bunch of them. Um, and then they also own, they're in the nuclear space. They don't own any nuclear power plants uh, directly, but they own a company called Westinghouse that builds these things and provides the fuel for them and services them. And they're like one of two in the world that like do this. It's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, they own all that. Um, and that's pretty much all the Brookfields that I own. There's some other branches, but I don't want to ramble all day about Brookfield. <laughs> yeah, as you could. Um just to circle back, quick note, Siemens does uh, healthcare, mobility, infrastructure, a whole bunch of stuff. So they're a really big company. Yeah. And, and Brookfield bought them, uh, which was a huge multi-billion dollar deal. Very, very cool. Uh, I forgot to mention, too, one of my top holdings is Enbridge. How could we forget to talk about Enbridge? Yeah, Enbridge, they're a, they're a big player for sure. Kind of a Canadian sweetheart. Pretty much any uh, self-respecting Canadian investor has some exposure to Enbridge one way or another. Yeah, Enbridge being the uh, gas and pipeline company, uh, they, they transport, they do not produce, my understanding, is natural the natural gas, right? Yep. They do transportation yep. of natural gas, they have all the pipelines, um, and the infrastructure that goes across um, North America, does it not go all the way to, oh, yeah. most of the states? Yeah, they go in the states too. Mexico? 
I don't know if they go as far as Mexico, but they do own, they just did this huge purchase. Was it Duke Energy? I can't remember. Anyways, they bought this massive American company um, kind of in the, the sort of eastern part of the country. It was a multi, multi-billion dollar acquisition where it's basically getting them into the utility game where they're providing gas um, to the customer, kind of like they do here where they, they provide, you know, you pay your Enbridge bill. They're going to start doing that in the States too as well, uh, which is kind of cool. It's diversifying their income stream versus just like bulk pipelines. Um, so that was kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Enbridge. Oh, one thing that really grinds my gears uh, not with Enbridge. Enbridge, in my opinion, is innocent. And they catch more flack than they should. I mean, not totally innocent, but on this particular topic. Um, maybe about a year, year and a half ago, or I think it was last winter, actually. Uh, everybody's gas bills in Ontario was going like skyrocketing. Their their Enbridge bills were going way up. And they were like, how is this legal? Enbridge is the devil. But if you just took the time to read a little bit on Enbridge's website or to just look at your bill closely, Enbridge does not make money on selling you gas. They have no control over the price of the gas. The gas, they simply are the highway of the gas from usually Alberta to your door. And that's that's where they make the money. It's from the company who's pumping that gas pays Enbridge a fee to do that. And when everybody's bills went way up, your Enbridge portion of that bill didn't really change a whole lot at all. It was pretty standard. It was the gas charge that Enbridge has zero control over that went up. And everybody was just ripping on Enbridge. And uh, that was upsetting to me. I was like, no, Enbridge didn't do anything wrong. You're just an idiot. Um, yeah, that, that was annoying. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, well, good point. Um, yeah, I think we covered everything we wanted to talk about. And uh, for such a small script, we've hit our target time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you get us talking about stocks, then we could go all day. Like stocks, the, the companies themselves, like we keep saying stocks and I think people mostly just think like, oh, it's a number and a graph, you know, but they're not just this like obscure number and a chart. It's they're, they're real businesses that really exist. And when you dive into what these businesses are doing and, and sort of, you know, what is their angle? What is their growth? What are their projects and their ambitions and, and how are they growing and developing and innovating? Like these are the things that drive the value of that chart when you think of stock, right? So it's it's kind of cool when you start to look at them as businesses you own versus just this chart and a number that you own. Uh, and then you, if you can get sort of interested in behind it, you can study it. And that's how you get these insights that I talked about at the beginning of the episode. Um, so I don't know. I, I personally really enjoy researching these companies and seeing what they're doing. And I tend to buy companies in industries that I'm very interested in. That way, it's fun for me to do the research. I find that really interesting. Um, but then there's a lot of stuff that I don't know a lot about. And you'll notice the theme, what we talked about here, a lot of it was heavily Canadian-based, right? So that's why we buy things like the ETFs. When you buy an ETF, you don't necessarily have to research each individual company to the extent that we're talking about it here today. Um, so there's different strategies for different folks. but. Uh, but yeah, I, I think hopefully what you've taken from this episode is that there are businesses behind these stocks and they do a lot of really cool, interesting things. Yeah. And you have to be careful too, because like lesson learned about not doing enough research, like Dan does a lot more than I do for sure. Um, I did buy a company, you know, out of a whim, basically under advice from a stranger 
which was my Algonquin power. And I really liked that they were paying a high dividend at the time, but I didn't do enough research. And what ended up happening with, and what's still happening with Algonquin power is they, any utility company takes on a lot of debt. That's just how the company runs. Just like telecoms, they just, they, they just have a lot of expenses. They expand and they take on debt, which isn't a bad thing um, in, in most of the circumstances, I would say. Uh, but the problem with Algonquin Power is it took a lot of vari variable rate debt, um, which was one of the issues. And so now with all the rates being crazy, they're paying uh, super high uh, bills, basically. And uh, that's part of uh, why the company's suffering right now. So um, that was my my lesson learned, that I just did not research that company enough to maybe catch that. And maybe I would have not caught it, even if I did enough research. But but nonetheless, I think it doesn't hurt to... to there's never... There's never a such thing as too much research. <laughs> um, if you have, you know, the, if you have the interest, the time, and the capability to do so, and I would argue that we all have the capability to do so because information is very easy to access. Yep. With a good old phone and internet connection. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there as a caveat a little bit. Remember, if you like this, let us know. And um, we're going to keep releasing episodes whenever we feel like. Yeah, every week or two. <laughs> or, or three, four, or four, or five. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, it's been a slice. Thanks for coming out, and we'll see you on the next one.